We're about to take you inside the world of automotive manufacturing. This is AutoLine. The auto industry is about to undergo what I'm calling the greatest peacetime conversion in the history of the industry. Whether it has to do with the massive shift in consumer preferences in the American market, or the tremendous challenge of reducing CO2 emissions in Europe, or the booming developing markets, there's more action in automotive manufacturing going on than at any point in history. Not only does this affect the automakers, it's impacting their suppliers and their workforce. It's a big challenge, but there's also some exciting new technology making it all possible. To discuss all these changes, I've got Joe Heinrichs, the Group Vice President of Global Manufacturing for the Ford Motor Company, and Jay Barron, the President of the Center for Automotive Research. We'll be back to talk about the greatest peacetime conversion in the history of the industry right after this. Visit our website for even more great content all week long. From our studios in the Motor City, this is AutoLine. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to our discussion right now, what I'm calling the greatest peacetime conversion in the history of the automotive industry with Joe Heinrichs, the Group Vice President of Manufacturing for all the Ford Motor Company. Great having you yeah, here, Joe. Thanks, John. And Jay Barron, the President for the Center of Automotive Research Thank in you. Ann Arbor. Great having you here, too, Jay. And my pleasure. Yeah, no, not only uh, my pleasure, too, having you. Oh, great, you. great independent voice of looking over everything here. But, Joe, <laughs> let me start with you. Do you buy what I'm saying, the greatest peacetime conversion? I mean, I look at what all you guys have got to do with your plants in North America. There's this CO2 challenge in Europe. There's yeah. booming uh, emerging markets, big things going on in manufacturing. Well, actually, we feel that way, and, we, and we've talked about it in somewhat in those terms as well. When you think about it, you know, the subtle things like converting V8 plants to build I-4 engines and all those things and the hybrid, the doubling of hybrid production that's going on and the six-speed transmissions. But I like to think of it this way. In the, in the heyday of the 90s, when Ford was really leading on the SUV side, Explorers and Expeditions were driving the profitability here in the U.S. out of Michigan Truck and Louisville Assembly Plants, respectively. Now we've announced we're converting those two plants specifically over in the next few years to build small cars off C-platform vehicle, global C-platform vehicles. And that's how dramatic the change is. Yeah, big body-on-frame trucks to small, you know, integrated body, front-wheel drive, four-cylinder cars. Well, let's let's get into some of those details. But Jay, I want to get you in on this too. Mm -hmm. You know, do, do you see a massive change it, it is, from manufacturing? It, it is a massive change, and, and it's not just I sixes to fours. Uh, it's uh, uh, lightweight vehicles. It's uh, a lot of powertrain technologies with turbochargers and direct injection and. Uh, a number of other things, electrification, uh, trying to get the load off the engine and so on. So there's a lot of things that are going on to try to get this, uh, 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 address this fuel emissions issue or, or gas emissions issue. Uh, and at the same time, you have, uh, as we go from larger trucks uh, to smaller cars, you have a very significant retooling of the industry that's going on. Uh, that's very expensive. And so obviously one of the issues today is flexibility and conversion issues. Um, it's flexibility in terms of converting from large vehicles on frame to smaller vehicles, but it's also uh, issues of, uh, as the sales have been contracting in North America, uh, how do we keep our plants near capacity so they can be profitable? So there's an issue of balancing the plant and keep it, keeping them running. 
of the plants that we do have uh, converted. Let's talk about the world, too, not just the U.S., though sure. we'll come back to that. Same issue going on in the world, I would imagine, in Europe with this 120 grams of CO2 per kilometer. you got to be looking at changing the mix there as well. Well, we're looking at sub-100 gram vehicles as well. In cities like London and other places, it is going on. And it's, 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 a, it's importantly, and it's important for the U.S. economy and the U.S. auto industry, all this is converging globally, which is actually good for the automotive companies because we can now talk, really talk about global platforms and global vehicles because the interest that people have in the Scandinavian countries is lined up with what's happening you know, in the, on the coast in the U.S. and in the Midwest. And then you look at the growth that's <coughs> happening in China and India and Russia. And all this is happening at a time when the world has sensibility to not just emissions but also fuel prices and gas prices. And those two can work together to bring out about new technologies to, to meet the needs that, that fit the global climate change issue and the economic needs of people when it comes to the price of gas. Jay, does this start to address maybe this issue of overcapacity? I mean, the, the rule of thumb in the industry has always been there's some 20 million units of overcapacity. That's right. I mean, like the, the entire <clears throat> North American industry worth of overcapacity. Does this globalization, global platforms, does this start to address that issue? It, it certainly helps it. Uh, but we, you know, first of all, the advantage of overcapacity is that you and I as car buyers and Joe uh, <laughs> get nice, great, cheap cars. Uh, we have a fantastic, it's, it's unbelievable when you look at what you can get today versus 10, 15, 20 years ago. Fantastic quality, great performance, uh, unbelievable choices of cars that, that are out there. So as consumers, we're all winning uh, there, but it's coming out of the pain of the auto companies as, as the sales have been contracting. Uh, the global platforms, obviously, uh, with the incredible cost pressures that we have, we've got to, our auto industry has to learn to produce uh, uh, more vehicles faster, cheaper, which is the main driver of these global platforms. So we're gonna, you're going to see, you're going to continue to see a, a reduction in total platforms per company. Probably more, I think as Ford would use the term, top hats, variants off a given platform. Explain that term, top hat, because a lot of people don't <clears throat> know what it means. Cle clearly, the, uh, uh, the most expensive part of building a car uh, has to do with the underbody, uh, perhaps the engine compartment, but it's inside the vehicle, not the skin panels and not the things that give the car its character and its definition. Those things can be adjusted. Uh, whether it's a sport car, even a two-door versus a four-door, and things like that. Those are, those so the top hat is like the body that goes it's, it's on the oh, chassis correct, and with right. the powertrain. That's correct. All the okay. sheet metal. And, and so if, if, if you can commonize the underbody uh, and, and the expensive portions of the vehicle that are very expensive to tool uh, and, build, and build multiple top hats, you have many nameplates. I think we have over 350 nameplates in North America Just today. Just in the U.S. market. Just in the U.S. Yeah, no question. Yeah, so the, the, the number is increasing dramatically. A great, again, great for the consumer, but very expensive. So you've got to commonize something. So we're, we're, uh, the auto companies are commonizing these underbodies and, and, and whatnot. And then as you commonize that, you are, you are also commonizing the engineering. You're reducing the complexity in the plant. Uh, you, you begin standardizing across your plants uh, because they, they're geared towards common underbodies. Uh, and that greatly reduces your cost and, and increases your agility to be able to launch new vehicles coming up. So, Joe, does this address, I'll ask the same question, well, it, this, it, this issue of overcapacity, it sounds to me like we're going to have a lot of plants that could get closed. We still have overcapacity issues, no question, in the industry. And it's a, it's a major issue. It's, a, it's an issue with our union partners, obviously our supply base as well. And it has to be addressed because Jay's right. We can't make money in capacity numbers that are in the 70s, utilization numbers in the 70s, for example. So we've been addressing it, as you know. I'll speak to Ford specifically, but we've closed 12 plants in the last five years, including seven assembly plants. But the reason why the, the platform strategy and the top hat strategy allows for better utilization going forward is that on that base platform, you can put multiple top hats in the same plant. 
which gives you more certainty of volume because if one segment takes off versus another, you have multiple top hats or multiple vehicles in the same plant, thereby ensuring that you're at least more probable you're going to utilize that capacity to its fullest as opposed to past strategies where you had one vehicle in one plant, that vehicle either took off or didn't, and then the plant suffered accordingly or, or, was, or, took, or you know, put, put more shifts on or overtime on. So you had these swings. You have some plants working overtime and some plants on one shift, and we need more balance and we need to have more stability. And so for our European operations, for example, all of our plants right now are running, we have you know, five or six assembly <coughs> plants, they're all running three shifts kind of full, and that helps drive capacity utilization, but more importantly, Profitability. Profitability. I mean, I know now the European market's slowing down, but it looked to me like you guys were on track, Ford Motor Company, that is, to make about a billion dollars net profit in Europe this year. Yeah, well, we made close to that in the first six months of this year in Europe. And you're right, the, the worldwide economy is slowing down, but we're very poised with our capacity utilization, for example, in Europe to continue to be successful. And that's, you know, we, we, we study our global operations around the world to make sure that we're doing the right thing here in North America, specifically in the U.S., to move forward, and that's kind of all of us are looking at it from a global manufacturing standpoint, same strategies. John, another important point is um, clearly this gives you the ability to have, operate certain plants at higher capacity, which is very important. And there, there will be a contraction of plants uh, because you, there's too much capacity no matter what you do. Uh, but the other thing that this kind of a global platform will do for you is uh, it makes the company much more nimble and agile. It can respond to the market faster. Uh, you can add top hats much more quickly than you can entire platforms. Uh, the other thing it does is, is as you launch new top hats or new variants, uh, you can re respond, uh, you can launch them quicker, you can convert and add them into the line quicker. Um, <coughs> uh, it, it provides advantages in terms of uh, quality uh, because you can, uh, you can make tweaks uh, to the quality process more uh, quickly and responsibly. Uh, it, it helps in all aspects of the performance of the plant. As you begin standardizing the plant around the platform, uh, cost, quality, uh, and timing are all, are all key. And on top of that, you have the common footprint, which uh, makes it more economical in terms of manufacturing engineers that go in to solve problems. Uh, so it's more off-the-shelf engineering, if you will. It's, it's more standardized. But there's got to be problems to this approach, too. And the reason I say that is, as you mentioned, you, you had this plant that made, you know, X hundreds of thousands of explorers. They all went down the line, explorers. Right. And manufacturing guys have always told me, keep it simple, stupid. Right. The more complexity you add, the more quality problems, the more, the more chances there are for things to go wrong. So you put all these different top hats on, on these uh, platforms going down the line, it's got to drive complexity up. Well, it does, but here's how we handle it. On the first part, on the, the, the really you can break down the assembly line into two parts. There's a trim and there's a chassis. On the chassis side, it's common. Mm -hmm. So that is the standardization that you're talking about. So it's the same coming down the line. The brake systems are the same, whether it's a, an SUV, a CUV, or a car on that platform. That's the top hat and the interior that becomes different. And so how you manage that complexity is you engage your supplier partners. And so the assembly line, that assembly line worker is just concentrating on value-added work, taking the next part and putting it on where it needs to be put on with good quality. And so what you do is you take that complexity and you take it outside the, outside the assembly line, either inside the plant or in the supply base, and they sequence things in to the build schedule. And so to, that, to the operator on the line, they're putting things doesn't in. Matter. It doesn't matter. If I'm matter. putting a seat in, who cares if the seats are different they as long as they sequence, go in the same way? Because they come in sequence. And as long as they go in the same way at the <clears> same point in time of the assembly process, which is critical. And that's what, what everyone's doing, but that's the value you get. And then you take a lot more material off the line, and you can condense the line, and then you can share the work much better. So there's all kinds of benefits to this. 
And don't underestimate how important it is to the supply base, number one, because you can do this either internally or externally with suppliers to, to, to handle that complexity. But secondly, all that chassis work, all that platform work that, that Jay was talking about is standard. So the supply base gets much more volume on simpler and more um, unique designs just for that platform, but they get a lot more volume. And so that helps with the supply base as well, because you know, we have a lot of capacity issues in the supply base and profitability issues, especially here in North America. It helps the suppliers as well. I, th I, th I think in some ways, John, what, we're, what, we've, what the auto companies are doing is they've lowered the water in the swamp. And the, the, the old bottleneck for, for flexibility and having multiple models in a plant used to be the body shop. Uh, that was uh, very difficult to automate. Where you weld all the different panels together. That's right. You couldn't handle the complexity. You couldn't handle it. And uh, the old way of handling it was you just had multiple loops for different models of vehicles, or you had indexing jigs, or you, uh, but they were, by and large, were relatively uh, rigid plans. Uh, as, as the automation today has become incredibly uh, accurate, repeatable, uh, and low cost even with the robots that you can get today, huge, huge, huge advances uh, in that. The robots today, you, you can get for 50% uh, of what you used to pay for them 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and they're more accurate, and they can carry more payloads. So uh, this, the technology advances really made some significant advances for the body shop to allow, us, to allow some of the things that like Ford is doing to, to become flexible. Now some, of the now some of the constraint now moves down to General Assembly and trim. Uh, uh, now, as you were pointing out, you have all these variants. You, uh, one of the constraints in General Assembly is uh, all this inventory you have to hold. Uh, you can't, uh, in the old days, you'd, have, you'd hold it right along the line because right. the assembly grabbing it and installing right. it. Now we've had to go to jet plants just in time, as, as Joe said, sequencing the material coming in. And so that's, that's basically where the next bottle that got moved to and that's being addressed primarily with uh, sequencing and working with your suppliers outside the plant. That's right. Are the suppliers going to be able to keep up? I mean, I, obviously they're gonna have to keep <clears> up, but you got these huge changes coming at your plants. I, I imagine it's a big headache for your suppliers as well as a big well, opportunity. I, I, think, I, think it's, I, think, I think it's more the latter. It's a big opportunity. We have to address the overcapacity issue and supply base, and that there's pain associated with that and in, in, in right-sizing both with the supply base and in ourselves. But the opportunity is to be more value added nearby. And that, and that becomes the better equation. Um, when you look at our European operations, we have supplier parks around all of our plants. And they se sequence in, in some cases, direct line connected to the supplier, a conveyor that goes right to the assembly line. And in here, we don't necessarily do that so much, but we truck it in but, but from, from close proximity. But suppliers become, they get the benefit of that those added top hats as well, because they then also get better utilization of their facility and more and more likely high capacity utilization, just like we will have. And so you get the right partners, and they're a part of this. They're going to benefit from it, and they're excited about it. Of course, you know, in our line business framework, we're trying to pick the right the right partners for the long term to come with us and make this happen. Let's get into a plant specifically. How does it become more flexible? I mean, Jay touched on this a little bit. The robots are more programmable. Okay, that addresses uh, the body shop part of it. But, but how do you build so many different variants? What, up front, what do you have to plan for? What are the key things? Well, it starts all with the product development system, frankly. And that's the part that, that most people have disconnected. It starts with having a one product development system that de delivers a product to us manufacturing with the same sequence of build and the same bill of design. Explain that sequence of build, simply. So, so that simply on assembly line, the parts go in, in the same spot in the line, whether you're building vehicle X or vehicle Y. For example, if the vehicle is designed in a way that the instrument panel goes in at this stage of the assembly, 
We need all the vehicles to be built that way. That way we can build them on the same assembly so line. So in the old days, the instrument panel might have gone in in station 15, and on another design, it might have gone in on station For 20. For example, you might have had, in the old days, you might have had some vehicles that were designed to be built with the doors on <clears throat> through the process, and some designed with the doors off. Well, depending on whether you have doors on or doors off, it depends on where you can get those parts to go in appropriately. And so now you have one standard bill of design that says doors are off for everything, and then you can get your assembly process to be the same. So it starts there. And then, if you have the flexibility in the body shop that we've been investing in here and around the world, and over 80% of our body shops are now flexible, if you do that, um, so you can have these, these multiple bodies coming in, then the key thing is just where are the locating points for like when you, when you load the, the chassis and the, and the body emerge and the powertrain comes up. As long as you have the same general location for the locating points for the fixtures to locate, they don't care if it's a, a focus or an escape. Because to, them, to, the, to the process, it's the same. It's looking for the same points. And then you have that flexibility both of the body shop and on the assembly line. And so our, our key is to make sure that when we do all this, that we give ourselves enough footprint size to be able to make top, different top hats, because from height and width and length, to be able to make sure that we can make a car or a crossover. You gotta be able to, be able to physically, physically fit. fit. And that's where the paint shop comes in, because the tanks are a key <clears throat> part of the paint shop. So you just make sure you got enough capacity space-wise where you dip the body in. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's about as simple as I can make it, but it really, it starts with product development though, and that's been the great thing here with Ford, the global product development system being led by Derek Kuzak. We agree on a bill of process and a bill of design together, manufacturing and product development, and everything going forward is that same way. I, I think the interesting perspective, John, is uh, you don't need high, high cost, fancy automation for a flex plant, because uh, it does start with product design. You've got to have standardized product, then after you get standardized product designs, then you get standardized process processing. Yep. And whether it's manual or automatic is a secondary question. Uh, the the pr interesting perspective on the auto industry is how uh, the Asian companies, particularly Toyota, uh, Nissan, Honda, uh, the pressure for them to become flexible was greater earlier than it is on North America. Uh, they were very cost conscious. Uh, their market was much more fractured than ours. Uh, the demand over in Asia, uh, prior to these companies building up as they have here in North America, uh, was to uh, introduce more automation. And uh, they, they actually had a much more stronger say in the design of the vehicle from manufacturing than- Very manufacturing driven companies. Very manufacturing driven. Out of necessity. And uh, so, so the manufacturing guy would say, well, yes, I can do that, but that's out of my process and it's not gonna be easy to do. Well, the designers would go back and make a change. You couldn't have done that 10 years ago in the United States uh, at Ford, GM, and Chrysler. The product guys really did rule the roost. And so uh, one of the things that has happened with this overcapacity, and that now we're all much more cost conscious, we need a little bit more of a balance. Uh, you, you, know, you, you can't make a car that people aren't gonna buy, uh, but at the same time, you can't uh, make a car too expensive uh, in manufacturing uh, as well. So I think the pendulum has kind of come a little bit more midway so that it's a, a little bit more of a balance between product and manufacturing input. And I gotta imagine that technology's helped you do this. I mean, you guys can create anything in the virtual world That's these right. days. Both the cars, you, you can build a car in a manufacturing plant and simulate everything before you even put a shovel in the ground to build the plant. That is, has <laughs> changed the whole world. And we are, for example, the Fiesta that's going into Quadratlon, the plant's getting retooled right now, but we're actually building the Fiesta in the virtual world every day, looking for interaction points, looking for, for issues that we may have in the, in the process. That's going on as we speak. And 
it's allowed us to obviously deliver the kind of quality results that we've seen from Ford the last couple of years, but it's also allowed the, the condensing of the time period that Jay was referencing earlier in the product development cycle, because what, part of the issue you have is if you don't find those issues early, you only find them out when you start manufacturing the vehicle, and then there's a, there's a delay in getting things to be just right to be able to make it. You do that in the virtual world now. All the interference issues, all the congestion issues, ergonomic issues are all found in the virtual world. And so you end up launching the vehicle in a shorter period of time and with a lot less losses and, and, and quicker to market. And that allows it all to happen. But importantly, the product development team and manufacturing team are there together in the virtual world. Because you also design the, the part in the virtual world now, which allows you then to transfer it quickly into the process virtual world. And all that brings it together. We, we used to look at the, the, the launch curves of a new product. And if you look at them 10, 15 years ago, uh, the launch of a new factory, you re it really took close to a year to really get the... Uh, the up to full line up, speed. Up, up to full line speed, and then if you also track the quality over time, uh, it, of course, continues, you know, continuous improvement, it got better, but a again, a year was not unusual to see it finally reach peak performance. Uh, with these kinds of digital analysis tools and the problem solving that occurs before the plant starts, these plants start up very quickly now uh, yeah. with, with very high quality. It's in days now, yeah. not months or years. Yeah. No kidding, yeah. just days to, yeah. from job one to going to flat out. Speed. You, you because can, you've already done it before. And you've done it in the virtual, in the virtual world. world. Now you, you intentionally use a few days because you wanna, don't want to pressurize the, the workforce. You want the workforce to get more and more comfortable because repetition is a key part of quality when it comes to manufacturing on the assembly line. You need to get comfortable with the, the motions that happen and all the interaction that happens with the parts. But once that, because, because you don't have the other problems, it's all about getting the person up to speed, all the individuals up to speed, and you can do that very quickly. This has got to be one of the best times ever to be in manufacturing then. Uh, well, other than the capacity issue <laughs> that we talked about earlier. But I mean, for what's coming, this has got to be it's exciting. It, 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 from my point of view, it's incredibly exciting because one, all the flexibility, and we can see what that means going forward. The alignment with the product development system and having that joint voice together. You know, the, the agreements we've reached with the unions over the last several years and, and making a much more affordable business model here in the U.S., for example, going forward. And then just this whole product onslaught that just keeps coming, because that's why we're all here, right? It is an exciting time. It's challenging, because the industry, obviously, would like to see more volume out of the industry, because um, that exacerbates the capacity issue in the near term. But longer term, we're excited about where we're going, and it is fun to be yeah, in manufacturing. I've always felt that the auto industry, particularly manufacturing with Joe and I, our, our world, has been grossly underappreciated by people who don't recognize the scope of what's really going on in these plants. And to the layman that walks into a plant, uh, of course, it's impressive to see robots and things moving and stuff, but there's a lot more going on than what the layman can see. Uh, and they need a sort of an in-depth perspective or somebody to explain to them all of why things work the way they do. We're going to have to wrap it up there. Great discussion. Thanks, yeah. Joe. Joe and Jay both. I'm, uh, you, I'm going to be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. That was a good discussion with Joe Heinrichs and Jay Barrett, but we have even more on our website at AutolineDetroit.tv in the extra section. We'll talk about some of the labor issues and how they affect this massive conversion taking place in manufacturing. Anyway, thanks for watching. We'll see you again next week here on AutoLine. <laughs>